Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. So we're going to be jumping into the next part of our series, part two. Uh, we're looking at the, uh, a series called Seven. Um, let me, actually, I want to share something real quick just to teach on this for a moment. I just was remembered. Some of you, I don't know if this is your first time at home church or not, um, but if you've been here, you probably recognize that sometimes worship can be quite different maybe than what you've experienced, and maybe you've noticed that there's times where people will share things in the midst of our worship service. Sometimes people will give what we call a prophetic word or a word of knowledge. Sometimes people will give what we call a speaking in tongues, and another will interpret. And I just want you to know that when Jesus, when Jesus was leaving, he said, it's better that I go, because when I go, I'm going to send my spirit. And one of the reasons why we believe in the manifestation gifts and why we encourage them is because we believe that one of the ways that you prove the resurrection and ascension of Jesus is by the manifestation of his spirit, because he promised that. And so... At our service, you may experience that at times. I encourage you, if you have questions, you can read in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses, uh, to chapter 14 is a great, great little excerpt on these gifts. I want you to know that those that share those gifts in this church are people that we know, that we know that they flow in those gifts. We do not just open it up to anyone, so you can take heart. If someone is moving in a public gift, it's someone that we have spoken with, all right? But, um, but yeah, I just want to encourage you on that and, and why we do that. And if you said that was weird, what happened? Um, you'd be surprised. For, for you, you may hear that word, and Crystal interpreted that word today, and you may say, I, it didn't resonate with me. But every single time, there's always someone that comes forward that says, man, that spoke deeply to my heart. That's what the gifts are for. They're meant to encourage and edify the body, and that's why we allow them as well. All right, so let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the, the second letter in this series. So if this is your first time here, we're working through a series again. It's entitled 7, the Roman numeral 7, which is um, a picture, a symbol of the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor from the book of Revelation. And as we worked through last week, and I, and I shared, and I'll just share it briefly again, that these are letters to historical churches, but there are these timeless truths that we can apply and learn a lot from. And I really believe that there is this full, whole teaching as we work through these letters that really will equip us and lead us to be a healthy, life-giving, empowered church. If you missed last week, I encourage you to to uh, dive into that and, and check it out on the website, only because we're going to be there, we're going to be in this for a few weeks, and I really want you to get the fullness of this teaching. But if you missed last week, in short, the first letter that, that, uh, that we went through is to the church of Ephesus, and really, to sum it up, Jesus commends this church that in every way is, is, doing, is doing really well. They are preserving uh, sound doctrine. They are persevering in the midst of persecution. They come against false apostles in every way. Uh, they are a serious church, but Jesus says, I hold this one thing against you. You have fallen from your first love. And Jesus says, you've actually fallen from a great height because what he shows us is that the thing of greatest value is, is not these things. As good as they are, it is the love relationship with Jesus. And he actually teaches us that even though they appear to be moving forward, doing their religious duties, he said, actually, you're in a state of backsliding because your heart is no longer aching for my presence. And so he calls them to return back to that first love. 
Now, this second week, we're going to look at a church that's called Smyrna. This letter is quite different. This is actually a pretty challenging letter, uh, but God, I really believe, released the word to me that I'm excited to, to share. I mentioned to you that these letters have patterns. They, uh, they fall into a certain pattern, and I'll probably print something out for you to take home so you can see this pattern, see how each church fits into it. Some of the churches, though, vary just a little bit, and this is one of them, where Christ, he gives no form of criticism to this church. He simply commends them and encourages them and speaks a word of hope to them. From what we can understand, uh, Christ was, was very pleased with this church. And what we're going to see is that this is a church that was situated in a city that was extremely loyal to the Roman government and also had a highly influential Jewish population that was pretty hostile to the Christians. So as a result, this was a perfect breeding ground for a hostile environment towards Christians, those who put their faith in Jesus. And this letter is coming to a people that are going through extreme hardship and suffering for their faith. Now, here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about hope and hardship. And I realize, I realize that we may not go through the same thing that Smyrna is going through. I realize that. I realize we may not face the same challenges for our faith. But nevertheless, we experience our own forms of hardship for our faith. Or at the very least, because no one in this room is exempt from the effects of a fallen and broken world, each and every one of us walk through deep trials in our life. I'm sure everyone in this room can say, since I have confessed and professed that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, it hasn't just been, been all peaches, not by any means. But the good news is, is that we receive this incredible hope that allows us to walk through the deepest of pain and the deepest of trials. Now, we may not be able to understand it in its entirety. Look, I can't touch on why God allows all these things to happen uh, we just don't have the time to go into that. It'll be another, another probably whole series. But I want you to know, it starts with first understanding that there is a level which we just have to say God's ways are higher than mine, right? The thought I had was, you know when you go to, if you have children, uh, maybe you, you've experienced this, you go to take your child to the doctors and, uh, and they need to get a shot. And they're, and, and they're looking at you like, why would you let me go through this? I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. And the child is looking like, how could you let this happen? And your heart is breaking. But you, from a parent's perspective, you see a bigger picture. You know that this shot is actually going to help them in the long run. And I believe in my heart that the trials and pain we go through, because God has an eternal perspective, he says, when you come into heaven and live with me for eternity, that which seems so painful, you realize it was just for a moment. And you will see the good that I have produced through every form of suffering and hardship that you have ever walked through. So this is a letter to this church, and I believe we're going to pull out these four truths of how we can have hope in the midst of our hardship. Now let me just set the stage for this letter, and then we'll jump right in. These are, as I believe, to be actual letters that these churches receive. So I want you to picture this scene for just a moment, because if this church could be encouraged, we certainly can be encouraged in our hardship. I want you to picture perhaps uh, a random cold morning. This church is gathering in a dimly lit house. And the light shows just a, a few, few believers in this room that are battered and bruised for their faith. And I want you to picture that which what once was a full room has now been dwindled down to just a few. There's many empty seats because many have turned away because of this persecution. 
and many have, even, many have even been taken and put into prison, exiled, or even killed. And the fact that they're even meeting, they put their lives at risk just to simply sing a song to God, to read his word, and, and just to gather together in fellowship. And can you picture this scene of these people gathering in this room, and their pastor comes forward and says, we've received the letter. And I can imagine that these people are saying, well, who is it from, pastor? Who is it from? And he says, well... Apparently, it's, it's from the Apostle John, and he begins to open it up. And I just had this vision as, as he begins to open the letter and he reads, he looks up at them and just, just with, with no words to say, this is from the Lord Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus himself. He says he sees us, and he sees what we're going through, and he's with us. And you can imagine this incredible hope that began to just speak to their hearts as they were on the brink of discouragement. And this is what the letter says. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him, this is Christ's words, these are the words of him, meaning Christ, who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And now we're going to break this open a little bit, but there is such rich encouragement for these people that are going through hardship. And I believe God wants to release that same, that same hope in the midst of your hardship today. Before we just look at real quick four things that I believe that this letter shows us of why we can have hope in hardship, I want to just start by sharing this. I think it's really, really important that we understand what I mean and what the Bible means when it talks about hope. Biblical hope and the world's understanding of hope is quite different. And just stay with me for a moment as I get a little technical, but I promise I think this is going to greatly encourage you. Biblical hope is based on two principles, desire and certainty. If you take one of these two out, you no longer have biblical hope. Let me explain. For example, if I take certainty out, I have a desire for something to happen, but I'm not quite sure if it will ever happen. Interestingly, this is really the world's definition of hope. It's often always time, always operating in the context of uncertainty. We say things like, I hope I'll get this job. I hope this will all work out. We are expressing a desire for something to happen, but we have no certainty that it will ever take place. That's not biblical hope. But then let me go a step further. Stay with me on this. When it comes to certainty, there's different types you can have. For example, you may have mathematical certainty, which means if I have two apples, you give me two apples, I am quite certain that I'm going to have four. That's mathematical certainty. You can have logical certainty, which means something like this. Islands are surrounded by water. Long Island is an island. Therefore, Long Island must be surrounded by water, right? Logical certainty. I'm quite certain that is true. But then there's another type of certainty, which comes from moral certainty. 
and it is based and rooted in one's will and character. For example, if I were to say I am quite certain that Crystal and I will remain married till we die, that is not based on math or logic. That is based on our morals, our will to be committed to one another, to the vows that we have made. So when we talk about biblical hope, it is not only a desire for what God has promised, but is an absolute certainty that these things will come to pass because of the one who stands behind these promises. It is because of the one and his nature and his will that we know for certain that when God has spoken things into our life, that he will without a doubt fulfill those very things because of his nature and his character. And it is for this very reason that the psalmist says, hope in God. Hope, not just hope in just this random hope, it's hope in God. What does that mean? Hope in the nature and the will of the one who stands behind the promises spoken over your life. That is why we can be certain and have great expectation for God to do the very things that he has promised to do in our life. And the reason why that is important is because that hope allows us and sets us free from being crushed by our circumstances. It allows us to transcend that knowing that even when we walk through the deepest of trials and the deepest of pain, that God's word is true. And everything that he's spoken to us through his word or personally, we know will come to pass. And so here's, here's four things in light of that. Here's four things that we see about hope and hardship that come from this scripture. And the first thing I want to share from verse 8 is that we can have hope and hardship because of the character of Christ. Now, if you recall what I shared last week, and we'll, we'll go through this each letter, every letter begins by Christ confessing a characteristic about himself. It all comes from chapter 1 when John had this first vision of Jesus. Remember last week we talked about the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands and how that tied in beautifully to that message, right? He does this because every characteristic that he references ties deeply into the message that he has for that church. And so for this particular church, Jesus begins by saying, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. This is from chapter 1. Let me read in chapter 1 in verses 17 to 18. You get a fuller picture of what he's referencing here. He says this to John. He says, I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. The first reason why we can have hope in hardship is because of the character of Christ. When he states this about himself, there is such comfort and hope that flows from this, this characteristic about who Jesus is. When he says that he's the first and the last, he speaks to his divinity. He speaks to the fact that he is eternal. What Jesus is saying is he's elevating himself above their circumstances. And he's saying your circumstances don't control you. Your circumstances are not what's actually running your life. He says, I am the first and the last. I stand above your circumstances. I am the first and I am the last. In other words, he's saying nothing has ever been initiated before me and nothing will ever come after me. Everything that has been passed through in your life has passed through my authority. Therefore, you can take hope and take encouragement that I've allowed all of these things to pass. When he says that he's the last, Jesus is stating, he says, 
I have the final word. Your grief does not have the final word. Your loss does not have the final word. Your addiction does not have the final word. Your pain does not have the final word. Death itself does not have the final word. Jesus says, I am the last. I have the final word. Therefore, you can take great hope and encouragement, even though you experience such tragedy right now, because in the end, my purpose and my plans will prevail in your life. And he says, I was dead and then alive, right? And in chapter 1, it says, behold, I am alive forevermore, or look, I'm alive forever and ever. Jesus literally has conquered death for us and now lives. And he points to the fact that the greatest consequence of sin is death. God told Adam, he says, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus is saying the worst thing that can happen is death, and I've conquered that already. And not only have I conquered it, I've conquered it through my death, which means if Jesus could conquer the greatest consequence of sin through his death, what can he do now that he lives forever interceding on your behalf? Surely he can sustain you and walk with you through the deepest of trials. The fact that he is alive forevermore means he will never experience the grave again, which means he is always alive and able to sustain you through the deepest of troubles that you walk through. What a great word of encouragement that he gives. He is alive forevermore. Peter actually says that we have not just a hope, but a living hope. Why is that? Because Christ is literally our hope. And since Christ lives, our hope actually lives. And he finishes it off by saying, I have the keys over death and Hades. I love that. It's, it's not, only he, not only did he have access to it, he has authority over that. I, I want to just get you to see a bigger picture. If we could just step back and just say, God, because we know your nature is good, and you're sovereign, God, we can trust in you. Even when we walk through the craziest of things, God, we know you are working this out, using all this, God, for your good purpose and plans for my life and those around me. We need not fear a world in which Christ has entered and triumphed over. And now, and now he lives for us. And the same victory he has, we also have access to. And so the first thing we see is that we can have hope and hardship because of the character of Christ. Here's the second thing. We can have hope in hardship because of the comfort of Christ. Don't believe the lie that when you go through hard times that God is not with you. Don't believe the lie that when you go through hard times that God does not care about you. Don't believe the lie that he has no interest. He's actually already proven himself to be deeply concerned about our suffering because he sent his son Jesus when we suffered at our worst point. He's already proven how deeply concerned he is when we go through hard times. But let me just show you in this scripture as well. In verse 9, it says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews. This wasn't anything against Jewish people at all. It was just, just like we can have Christians today who, who uh, hide under the name of religion and do horrific things. This was the same thing. And he says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, just, just hear this. There's great comfort that's coming out of this. He speaks about their, their affliction or their tribulation. The word is pressure. It's, it's an intense pressure. When you, when you 
apply it to human terms, it's actually, it's a really intense image. It's like a boulder on your chest that is so intense, it's crushing you. He says, I see what you're going, I see the pressure that you feel right now. And then he says, and I see the poverty, your poverty. That's not just not having, uh, you know, a lot. That means nothing. These people have nothing. And the reason why is because they would not worship and, and, and sacrifice to, uh, to the Roman leaders who were considered gods. And as a result, they were taken away from jobs. They were, stuff was taken from them. And, and so they were left penniless, poverty and this pressure. And, and Christ comes to them, I love this, and says, I know, I know, you're, I know the pressure that you're going through. I know, I know the hardship that you are experiencing right now. And I think that often when we go through hard things that there's that lie that says, man, God is not with me. God doesn't see me. God doesn't care about me. But in this, we see that Jesus is deeply concerned and deeply aware of his people. And the fact that he says, I know, this is what he's speaking at. He's not just saying I'm mentally aware of what you're going through. Yes, that's true. But he's saying, I have knowledge through experience. The word is empathy. This is such a beautiful quality of who Jesus is. He can empathize, meaning he can come in our shoes because he understands what it's like. The scriptures say that we, do not, we have a high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses because in every way he was tempted like us, yet was without sin. In other words, this makes Jesus approachable. He does not look at us when you go through hardship and say, how could you feel that way? How could you struggle with this? This is not that big of a deal. You'll be with me forever in no time. Get over it. He does not speak down on us. Instead, he says, I understand. He longs. He says, come to me. Talk to me. I understand what you're going through. We can have hope and hardship because of the comfort of Christ. How many of you, <laughs> you've been stuck in uh, traffic on the LIE, right? So then when someone calls you who says, I left work at 2. It's 4.30. I'm still not home. You're not saying, so what's the big deal? You say, man, I understand. That really stinks to be stuck in that. I understand what you're going through. Jesus, because he entered into this world and experienced what we've experienced, he can empathize with us. He understands the trials that we go through, and therefore, it opens the door for you to come to him and share what's going on in your heart, and he will never look down on you and judge you for that. So don't believe the lies that he's not with you and doesn't care about you. And he finishes off by saying, yet you are rich. This is one of the reasons why I love these letters, because we learn how Christ sees things. If you were to walk by this church, I would say this is an insignificant church. <laughs> they have nothing to their name. And yet Christ comes to them and says, actually, you are rich. I see something very different than you see. And the last thing I'll share on this point is, I think this, I hope this will encourage you. You have to picture this, that they're in a city that was known for its beauty and its prosperity. So here are a people that are faithfully following God and find themselves going through the deepest of hardship. And here are a people who seem to have no concern for God and seem to be prosperous and blessed in every single way. And I wonder, have you walked through that where well, you've been through something and said, I don't understand Jesus, I've given you my life. I follow you faithfully. There's some people who seem like they don't even care. How come I'm going through this and they're not? Let me tell you something. Write this psalm down because I'm not going to go through it. Psalm 73. Read this psalm. It is the most encouraging psalm for me at times when I go through this. 
I love how real the Psalms are. They're not this lip service to God. This was a psalmist. This was a man who wrote to God, and this is what he basically says. He says, I envy the arrogant. He says, because they are so prosperous. He says, basically says, I don't understand it. I follow God. I do the right thing, and yet I just have hardship after hardship, yet the wicked seem to be amassing wealth. And then he goes on to say, he actually says this. He says, I fear that I've kept my heart pure in vain. Man, that's real. I feel that I've followed God in vain. Maybe this wasn't worth it. Maybe, maybe this was just, it was foolish for me to do this. And then he says this, I could not understand this until I entered into your sanctuary, until I entered into the presence of God. And then it says, the Lord says, and you reminded me of their final destination. Now, that's not telling us to go around and say, well, look how you're living. You know where you're going. Not at all. The Father's heart is that none shall perish. That's not what it's saying. But what it is, it was encouraging to say, remember, remember that this world and everything in it will pass away, but you have the greatest treasure in Jesus. And what seems like an eternity here is nothing compared to eternity. So once he was reminded, say, yeah, that's right. There's more to this world than this. Jesus, you're worth it all. His heart was encouraged. And let me encourage you with that as well. And so we have hope and hardship because of the character of Christ. We have hope and hardship because of the comfort of Christ. And here's the third thing. We have hope and hardship because of the cause of Christ. What I mean is this, is that the cause of Christ, what I mean is that our hardship and our trials always have purpose. You have to grab hold of this. They are never in vain when you are a child of God, your hardship is never in vain. It's never wasted. It's always producing something. It's always doing something. Even if you cannot see it, that's what the scriptures tell us. Now here's, because again, the lie will be that you went through this and there was no point to it. This was just a, 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 pointless, a pointless struggle. <laughs> so this is why this is important. Listen to me on this for a sec. We live in a culture... Western culture especially, that has come to the conclusion that the ultimate meaning of life is comfort and happiness. Now, those aren't bad things, and God provides those things, but they are not the ultimate meaning of life. And the problem with that is if anything comes against those things, we absolutely hate it because it comes against what we, what we think is most important. But the Bible teaches us that that's not what's most important. And therefore, we can have a new perspective on how to view our trials and our hardship, that in it, God is always producing something and doing something. And in the biggest picture, the biggest picture is this. Anything that draws us to God is a good thing. Again, because he has an eternal perspective. And so what we usually find is that hardships, at, at the most basic answer is this. They show us the insufficiencies of this world to see us through. And they lead us, they lead us to cling and seek out after God. And anything that does that is a good thing. But let me, let me share this with you, how, where I see this in this scripture. It's in verse 10 where it says this. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. 10 days is so, so important. This, uh, there's two things that I feel like God was showing me in this. The, the ten is actually referred to, um, it's in the Bible a few times, but there's this one scene where Daniel 
is in the opening book of Daniel when he's been taken to Babylon. And the king wants him to eat certain foods that are basically their sacrifices, worship to the king. And Daniel's like, I'm not doing it. And he says, how about I just eat vegetables and drink water? And the royal official's like, well, you're going to look terrible compared to the guys that are eating the right food. He's like, I can't do that. And Daniel says, well, let's do this. Let's, let's do 10 days, and we'll see what happens at the end of this. The, the, the thing is, the 10 days speaks to this complete period, a period of testing, a period of great purpose. So when God, when Jesus tells them that you are going to suffer for 10 days, he's saying there is going to be a wholeness and a completeness to what you are going through. This is not in vain. It's going to produce something very deep within your life. What meant to destroy you, God is telling them, is actually going to test you and it's going to do something great in your life. How many of you ever heard the illustration of the purification of gold, right? Right? You apply the heat, the impurities rise to the top, and then you scoop that off. And that's how you get pure gold. Likewise, when the, when the heat of affliction and trial comes against us, it often allows the impurities to rise up so that God can continue to remove those and purify us. There are many scriptures in the Bible that speak in things like this. Consider pure joy when trials come your way. And then it'll often speak of terms like, Faith is built in that. Endurance, character, perseverance. You'll see these same things mentioned throughout the scriptures. And what I found is that there are certain and specific fruit that can only be produced in the soils of suffering. They are not produced anywhere else. And God allows these things to take place because they do this deep work within our heart. And so not only is it a complete period, but the fact that he says it's 10 also says this, it is an absolute definite period, which means it will pass. It will not last forever. This would have brought great, great encouragement to hear this. You will go through a hard test of what he's saying, but know this, it will accomplish something great, and one day it will come to pass, and it will be over. Jesus says the trials will come, but they will be short. Joy is also coming, and it will be everlasting. This is why the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, it says this, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. My goodness, light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that it's leading us to. Do you, do you know, I want you to hear this. I've been, I was so encouraged by this portion of scripture. It's in Romans chapter 8. It's verses 18 through 25. I've read this many times, and I, I did a, a memorial service not too long ago, and God drew me to this portion of Scripture. And I actually used the Message Bible, and I, and I share that because the illustration that's used is really unique. And I want you to hear this. This is the portion of Scripture which starts off by saying that I am convinced that our present sufferings are nothing compared to the eternal glory that awaits us. Paul begins to speak about this this dynamic of saying we are children of God, and we have this great inheritance that is coming, but... We're not there just yet. And Paul actually begins to talk about how there is this groaning by the children of God for what is to come. And what he talks about is actually that he uses the idea of the brokenness and the suffering of this world that is leading to a groaning. And in the, in the Message Bible, it's really interesting, he uses this illustration of a pregnant woman. And he says, when a woman is pregnant... Does the waiting diminish what is going to come? No, it enlarges her. In other words, as they wait, the expectancy and the hope for what is to come begins to build. 
So one of the great blessings of why God allows us to go through things is because it produces this hope and this great expectancy for what God has promised to us. Because if you are anything like me, you will become often married to the things of this world and think this is all there is. But God allows these things to come into our life that almost wake us up to say, wait a minute, there is more than what I'm living for right now. And so the fourth and final thing, there's hope and hardship because of the character of Christ. There's hope and hardship because of the comfort of Christ. There's hope and hardship because of the cause of Christ. And lastly, there is hope and hardship because of what is to come for those who are in Christ. And the last verse right here, I just read it. It says, "Whoever," verse 11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And what he's speaking about here is the glorious future that we have as those who are in Christ. Listen to me. We often, we often, all of us, myself, probably don't do this enough, remind ourselves to live in light of eternity. But one of Paul's main teachings throughout his letters is to continually, he would continually teach that the Lord is coming and he's returning because it greatly impacts the way that we live here and now. And one of the ways that it, do, that it does that is it allows us to have a different perspective when we walk through hard times. You may have heard the scripture that you're, or not the scripture, that's what we usually think it is. That's what I want to come against. We usually hear that it's, uh, you're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. I used to be like, yeah, that's right. And then I said, wait a minute, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Everything points for us to have a heavenly perspective. It's not saying to escape from the now or have no engagement with the now, but what it's saying is when you do that, it allows you to live a life of radical faith. It allows you to understand how to walk through your deepest of trials knowing that there is something greater that is coming. And so when he says that you won't face the second death, it's, it's the final judgment. And could I just share right here, I'll leave you with this, these five things that come at the end just to encourage you, that if you find yourself going through something, just to remember like where, where we're going, how, how, how fast this is going to be over and what it's going to be like. If you want to, I, I was so excited, I was telling Crystal when I was going through this, you got to go to Revelation 21 and 22. Just start reading about what's going to happen. The, whatever you're going through, you start saying, are you kidding me? Uh, it's, let, whatever happens, happens. I'm going to be with Jesus forever. Listen, the first thing it says is we're going to enjoy a new heaven and a new earth. I love this because I often have the thought that I'll just be kind of floating around aimlessly somewhere. But this is teaching us that God is literally going to reestablish a heaven and earth. In some way, there's going to be a resemblance to how we're living now, except it's going to be perfect. It'll be free of all the effects of sin. The scriptures say that no, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor mind can imagine the good things that God has prepared in advance for those who love him. Do you know that in this new heaven and new earth, it says there's no light? There's no, I mean, well, there's no sun and there's no moon. Do you know why? Because God himself comes and he says his glory gives off the light. I mean, this is incredible of us living in this, in this new heaven and new earth. Then it says we're going to live in intimate and personal communion with God. This is what we were created for and we will have no barriers between it anymore. That's why the scripture says that we've received the Holy Spirit as a deposit of, a, of guaranteeing what is to come. You know those moments when you have that sweet time with the Lord? That's going to be forever. Even when you're communing with someone else, it'll be perfect. 
It says, we no longer experience the horrible effects of sin. We will rest in the sure promises of God. No more tears, it says. No more sorrow. No more suffering. Pain ends. And the last thing is, we will live as God's adopted children with no fear of the second death, which means that we will be with those, our loved ones, who have put their faith in Jesus. We will be reconciled with them, living with them for eternity. Man, if we just take some time to think about this, it allows us to have a whole new perspective of what we're going through. So worship team coming up as we just, we'll just close right here. I'm going to pray for us and then I'll release you guys. But I hope that, I hope that you've uh, just begun to be deeply encouraged if you're walking through hardship. Just from this small text alone, there are so many reasons why we can have hope in the midst of all of it. This letter says, he who has ears to hear, or whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. John is saying, do you hear what the Spirit is saying? He's saying, stay committed to the Lord. Walk with him. Walk with him. There is, there is glory on the other side, no matter what you're going through right now. There is glory on the other side. He says, it's teaching us, take our eyes off our circumstances and begin to fix them on Christ. And let him lead us through the deepest of pain that we walk through. I... I one day we're going to be with him, and we will realize that this was such a, a quick moment when we spend eternity with him. And I, I'll leave you with this. Romans, Romans 8, 28 tells us that uh, God, he works, things all to, uh, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? Uh, something that the Lord shared with me a while back, and I'll share with you again. If I, I don't know if I've said this before, but sometimes we hear that and say, yeah, but it's just not good right now. <laughs> well, if it's not good, it's not over because his word is true. And when he says that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him, that's what he means. And maybe we may not see it on this side of eternity, but there is where the faith comes in to say, God, I trust you. I trust you, and I believe in you, Lord. He says, he says that he, our hope is not that he is removing all bad things so, for our good. He is working through all of the painful things for our good, which means we will face them, but we have the great hope that he is working through and doing something deep within them. Thank you for listening to Home Church's podcast. To go deeper into the message, text DEEPER to 66866. If you would like to give to this ministry, you can text the amount to 631-693-4176 or visit us at myhomechurch.org backslash give.